as we did for the month of February, we're changing things up again a little bit. Um, if you t- uh, attended at all in February, you noticed that we kind of broke up the sermon into parts. Um, we provided a survey for you. If you haven't filled that out yet, it's on your uh, Connect card, um, on your bulletin, or you can go to lwinfo on your .org on your phone and find it there. Um, it'll just say survey. We uh, are beginning a new worship series today uh, entitled, This Changes Everything. And we're going to carry this series through uh, today. Uh, this is called the season of Lent. Lent are, uh, is the 40 days, not including Sundays. So by the way, those of you who gave up chocolate for Lent, Sundays aren't included. Binge all you want. Um, so it's 40 days, not inclusive of Sundays, and uh, that goes to Easter. We're going to continue the series then the week after that into our Confirmation Sunday, which follows Easter. But in this series, we're talking about um, the way that the people who encountered Jesus in the first century, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read it in the Gospels, the people who encountered Jesus were changed significantly. Um, so, so much so that some of them even changed their name, right? So Simon becomes Peter, Levi becomes Matthew, and then later we find in the book of Acts that Saul becomes Paul. So much was the change in their life in encountering Christ that they changed their names. There are others who didn't change name, but James' sort of job description is the mother of Jesus, Mary, becomes a follower of Jesus, So we're going to look at at, at many of those characters. We're also going to look at people's perception of Jesus as we begin with this sermon today when Jesus became Lord. And we're going to talk about what that means. Today we're uh, in uh, the Gospel according to John, the first chapter, beginning at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said, he who comes after me is really greater than me because he existed before me. Even I I didn't recognize him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be made known to Israel. John testified, I saw the spirit coming down from heaven like a dove and it rested on him. Even I didn't recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit coming down and resting is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this one is God's Son. The next day, John was standing again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus walk along, he said, look, the Lamb of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, probably, we don't know her exact age, but young teen is what we're led to understand because we understand that that girls of a young age, a young teenager, would be betrothed or engaged through the work of their parents, to someone else. And we know that Mary was engaged to Joseph. Mary becomes pregnant before the marriage. 
And we're told through scripture, we're told that, uh, that uh, Mary is told even, and, P- and, and Joseph is told as well, the, 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 the father uh, is, is told, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The child you're carrying is the work of the Holy Spirit, and that child will be great, will save a nation. Now that sounds real good until you start to show and you're an unmarried girl in the first century Palestine. And so Mary, for whatever reason, whether it's the shame she felt herself or the the glances that she got in the marketplace or the rumors that she heard when she was drawing water out of a well, Mary decides, I've got to leave town. And she travels to a town nearby to spend time with her cousin Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth is much older than Mary. They say that she was past the years of childbearing. I don't know what that was back then. I suspect that medically it's a whole lot different than today. Past the years of childbearing and yet Elizabeth found out some months before that she was expecting. Again, we don't know the exact term, uh, uh, amount of time that in between, in between Mary's conception and Elizabeth's previous, prior conception. But we just know that, that Elizabeth was expecting when Mary arrives at the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah, her husband, because as Mary walks in the door, bearing the presence of Christ with her, the son in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. We men have no idea what that's like. But those of you who have given birth have some idea. Those women in the room that have given birth have some idea of what it feels like for a child to do a somersault in your womb. And that's what took place. The presence of Christ in the presence of John, who will later be known as John the Baptist, the presence of Christ causes John to celebrate. Now later on, John's going to say, I didn't know this was the guy. But in the womb, he knew. None of us remember what happened at that time of our life, so we don't report it later. Mary stays with Elizabeth for a term of time. Again, we're not told in Scripture how long she was there. But at some point, she decided she needed to rejoin her future husband in Nazareth. And then... They decided there needed to be a census taken. We do that here all every 10 years, right? Well, it needed to be done. But in order to be done, you had to go to the city of your forefathers. And so because she was engaged to a man, the man had to go to the city of his forefathers. And Mary went with Joseph to Bethlehem. And while there, gave birth. We remember that story. That's Christmas, right? Well, that didn't sound like a really good thing for everybody, like Herod, the, the king of the day. And, and so Herod is seeking to kill Jesus, not knowing him by name, just knowing that this is the one that somebody else has said is going to become the king of the Jews. Herod's out to kill him. Mary and Joseph escape and go down to Egypt. Some years later, after Herod has passed away, they find it safe and they travel back up to Nazareth where Jesus grows up. Now, there's some things in Scripture that we just have to suppose. 
because, because not everything is told to us. So we have to suppose. So I suppose that these cousins, Jesus and John, grew up to know each other. I don't know that for sure. It doesn't say in the scripture that they hung out together. But here's what I do know. I, I do know that, that the people of Israel, they had more vacation days than any of us ever thought of. They really did. Laura was telling me, uh, Laura was telling me that, that uh, um, what is it, Pulaski Day? They get off in, in Illinois in, in schools. They get off for Pulaski Day. We have no idea who Pulaski was and what he did, but sure glad they did it. Get a day off. <laughs> well, while we were with the confirmation class in, in, uh, at a synagogue on, on uh, Friday night, learning about the, the, the Hebrew faith, um, the, the cantor, who is a rabbi that can sing, uh, the cantor, um, uh, uh, who's just brilliant at his job, but he said this, he said, Here, here's, here's this, the real story of the people of Israel referring to all the festivals that they have. Here's the real story of the people of Israel. We could just say it in just a few words. You tried to kill us, you failed, let's eat. They had festival after festival after festival, and many of them were to celebrate the fact that God delivered them out of whatever danger they were in. The people of Israel got together all the time for a festival. Don't you suppose... That if Mary was close enough to Elizabeth to escape to her house when she was afraid, wouldn't they relate to one another otherwise? My daughter recently posted on Facebook a picture of our four grandchildren in a wheelbarrow. Go with it. And, and, her, and her comment was, isn't it great that cousins grow up to be friends? And so I suppose that Jesus and John knew each other. Now, when I say I suppose, I, there, there, is some, there is some, you know, evidence biblically, but then also I have an imagination that doesn't get biblical backing. And in my imagination, when they would get together, little Jesus would run around six inches off the ground, and John would be rolling in the dirt. See, here's what we know. About, it was, that was funny in the last service, by the way. <laughs> So John the Baptist was this guy that dressed up in, in animal uh, uh, skins and, and ate uh, uh, locusts. I've seen four-year-olds eat bugs, but we don't know if it was actually the locust bug or if it was the locust bean that comes from a locust tree. I've seen the locust bean. I don't want to eat either. So John's this rough-and-tumble kid, and Jesus is Jesus. <laughs> They grow up. And they reach an age where we're told uh, through scholars who study that time and study uh, the Hebrew faith of that time, we're told that somewhere around the age of 30, and I don't remember all the details because I graduated seminary like 25 years ago and some of it has lost, fell out of my brain. But, but we're told that, that there, there came a time where uh, if a person decided they were called by God to teach, they could gather followers around them. And I think it's around the age of 30 that they were given the opportunity, given the authority to gather followers around them. And, and we're pretty sure that's what John the Baptist was doing. He was gathering followers around him and as he baptized and taught. Now, baptism was not his invention. 
Some people think that was the first time baptism came up. Actually, there's evidence that 10,000 years ago or 8,000 years before Jesus, baptism was taking place in Egypt. And it was taking place in different places for different reasons all around the area. But, but the, the fundamental faith practice that, that was the, the same in all of those practices was the idea was to wash away the old self so the new self could come through. That's pretty close to our baptism. And so John comes baptizing with this idea to wash away the old and bring in the new, to usher in the new for the sake of the coming Messiah. And he's gathered some followers around him. And scholars suppose that one of those followers was cousin Jesus. And it came time that Jesus was to be baptized. And so, and so Jesus enters the water with John, and John looks at him and says, oh, no, you should, this has got to be the other way around. At that point, John had some inkling that maybe Jesus was somebody different, somebody more important, somebody, somebody I should be paying attention to. And then he baptized him. And scripture tells us that after he was baptized and Jesus is emerging from the water, the Spirit of God, as John reports and is also in the other Gospels, the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove. Don't know how else to describe it. It just looked, it was a physical, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, a physical uh, um, apparition of the Spirit of God coming down upon Jesus. John witnesses this, other people witness this. They see Jesus with the Spirit on him. And then they hear a voice. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. And it's at that point that, that, that John is able to look at Jesus and go, I get it now. I understand it now. I'm understanding the story from, that I was told since my childhood that when Mary entered the house, I leapt for joy. I get it now. I see it now. It's not me that people ought to be following. It's him that people ought to be following. And he pointed his disciples to Jesus and he says, there he is. That's the one. Isn't that a great teacher who says, by the way, the better teacher is that one. Let's back up a second. Do you know what they called the people that would follow a great teacher? Disciples. Do you know what the disciples would call the teacher? Besides rabbi, by the Hebrew word, do you know what the disciples would call the teacher? Lord. Lord. Last week in teaching the confirmation class, I, I taught them that uh, um, there's, there is a, a phrase that, that we say as Christians, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. On Easter, I'm going to talk about Savior. Stay tuned, but it seems like an appropriate Sunday for that. But today, let's talk about what it means for us to say Jesus is my Lord. And what I explained to the confirmation class is if you, if you think about Jesus in, in the terms of... Um, 
You think about the feudal times, the kings and queens, and they had those back in Jesus' day. And you, you think about princes and princesses, but they also had people who had a region they were responsible for. They were responsible for the care of that region. They were responsible for everything that happened in that reason, region. And, and that person would be called the Lord of the region. And everything that was in that region owed a faithfulness. Fealty is a, an old English word for it. Owed a faithfulness to the Lord. And the Lord would say, if the Lord said, we're going to farm over there and not over there, you would farm over there and not over there. If the Lord said, we're going to graze over there and not over there, you would graze over there and not over there. And if the Lord said, we are going to battle, you would not say, let's consider the political ramifications of that. You went to battle. Because the Lord owned everything in that region, including the people. And the Lord protected everything in that region, including the people. And the people owed their debt of gratitude to the Lord and their faithfulness. So as we call Jesus our Lord, it is for the sense that Jesus is our teacher, but also that, that we owe that debt of gratitude, that the, the Lord Jesus saves us. And we'll talk about Savior later, I said, but, 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 but preserves us for an eternal future. And it's on us to, to, to live our life according to the way that Jesus teaches us. But Jesus calls us to task. There's, a, there's a, a sentence that he states, that he speaks. In the book of Luke, Jesus calls us to task and says, are you really doing it? He says this from uh, Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And I think that's a sentence that's not only intended for the first century. I think it's a, it's a sentence that should be asked for every Christian in every century since, including us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I also recognize we live in the 21st century, and boy, is it different from the first century. Man, are things different from the first century, aren't they? I mean, Jesus, the people in Jesus' time, they didn't have to deal with traffic. They didn't have businesses the way we have businesses. They didn't have, you know, international corporations the way we have international corporations. They didn't have mom and pop operations trying to exist with the taxes, not in the same way, anyway, that we have. They didn't have all the problems. They didn't have social media and the deals that we have to deal with with that. They didn't have all of this. How in the world does Jesus speak to the 21st century? It's so different. They didn't have churches that have air conditioning in the wintertime. I'm going over to Ghana on Saturday and flying to Ghana again because uh, we've just completed six, uh, five of the chapels that we've uh, paid for to be built. And they, they like us to show up for the dedication of these chapels. And so I'll be there with bishops and, and, and pastors and, and we'll be dedicating these chapels. And I'm told that, that to expect that each one of those dedications takes two to three hours. You think I'm long-winded? 
two to three hours to dedicate a chapel. Oh, by the way, they don't have air conditioning and the weather next week is around 104 in the daytime. But we're in the 21st century in America, middle of America. Does what Jesus command us to follow, does it, does it line up? Can, can, we, can we actually follow that Lord in this century? It's a rhetorical question because you know I'm going to say yes. And I think the reason I can say yes is because, because I believe that what Jesus tells us to do is so simple we can apply it to any context any context, that it's not dependent upon culture, it's not dependent upon what era we live in. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. I I take three different scriptures to kind of help us understand what I mean by that. So in Matthew 28, the last words that Jesus says, Jesus goes up on a mountainside, he's about to ascend into heaven, gathers his followers around him, some of whom still doubted, the scripture tells us. And he says, I have all authority. I am the Lord of the earth. Therefore, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age, no matter what age, Jesus is with us. To the end of the age, Jesus is with us. But he says, make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've taught you. Okay, now, now we got to figure out, how do we go beyond that? What, what, what did you teach us to obey? What, what are those things that you taught us to obey? When you said that you are the Lord of our life, what are the things you, you said, you know, did you say go ranch there or there? or What are the things, because I want to be clear. I don't want to break the commandments. I want to be clear what they are. And so somebody encounters Jesus at one point and says, what is the greatest commandment? It's a trick question, but it, it, it was meant to say, what you're supposed to say is none of them are greater than the others. They're all the same. But Jesus doesn't go there. He says this, Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You're supposed to love God with your whole being, with everything that you are. I'm not sure that is, uh, requires a certain cultural context. I recognize loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength is a struggle in the 21st century, but probably not any different than any other century. And then he goes on to say, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Maybe more than any other time in human history, maybe that's hard because... We don't always love ourselves. We talk with our children all the time, and, and hey, I'm 57 years old, and they talked to me about this when I was a kid. We talk about self-esteem because for some reason in, in our current culture, we tend to engage in a self-loathing rather than a self-esteem. So maybe it's difficult to love our neighbors like we love ourselves because we don't necessarily love ourselves all that much, at least in concept. But, but each one of us loves the being. We don't want to, or I hope you don't want to, to, to have this self end. 
but you, you love to, to live and you, and you want to live and you want to continue on. And if you can love yourself at least that much or if you love yourself a lot, the point is love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Then we come around and say, okay, I get it, I heard you, love your neighbor, but what does that look like? Because I need you to explain it to me. And Jesus, again, in very simple terms, brings it to us. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about um, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And, and you and I think this would be so easy because when we think about sheep, we, we think about a big fluffy white animal, right, that needs to be sheared every once in a while. And when we think about goats, we all have this image of the thing with the horns. They're only about that big, but they can knock you down unless you scare them, and then they fall over and play dead. Um, and we see that on Facebook, right? All those little, I mean, if it's not a cute cat, it's a cute goat video you're watching. In Ghana, where the goats and the sheep probably look a little bit more like the goats and the sheep that Jesus saw, in, in Ghana, in Africa, um, I learned something about sheep and goats that I didn't know. First of all, those two animals look identical, with one exception, a goat's tail goes up, a sheep's tail goes down. So when you're talking about separating the sheeps and the goats, it's not as easy as it might first appear. But Jesus uses this in an eternal sense. And he says that there's going to come a time where, where God's going to say, goats over here, sheep over here. And by the way, those sheep that are over here, you're going to come and stay with me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whenever you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. It's real simple. To love your neighbor, you do real concrete signs of, of, of love and care and mercy and justice. I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list. Jesus just gives us those, those few things. You want to know how you practice love to your neighbor? You, you give yourself to them. Is it the greatest example of one who loves the example of the cross, one who's willing to die for us, and we are called as followers to give ourselves fully to others. What does it mean to follow Jesus as Lord? It is to trust that when we come to the end of this time, Jesus has us, has our eternity sewn up, and then to live our lives in such a way that we with our whole being, love God, and with everything we are, show concrete, real activities of mercy and justice and kindness and compassion. Loving God, loving our neighbor. I'll grant you that this is very difficult to live out, but so simple in its construct. Love God, love your neighbor, and teach other people to do that. Can you follow that, Lord? Amen and amen.